All right. You know, I love uh, listening to worship music. And that's one of the things that over my life has really kind of sustained me in many ways. I have a Spotify playlist that has about 95 uh, worship songs on it that I, it's my, it's my go-to oftentimes when I want to kind of get my head in, in the right place. Um, it, cause that's what it really does for me. A lot of times when I, when I listen to worship, I'll go up Higgins trail up here and walk and I'll just listen to into this music. And what oftentimes it does, it kind of puts me in a place where life kind of starts to make sense. You know, I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but when I listen to worship music, oftentimes it's, I start to get the right perspective on life. My perspective changes from my issues, the worries that I have, to the truth of God's Word and to the power uh, that is in it. There's one song that, I, I mean, I love a lot of songs, but there's one song that I really like. It's called Mighty to Save. Laura Story, I believe, sings this, Mighty to Save. And the first line goes like this. It says, everyone needs compassion, love that's never failing, let mercy fall on me. Now, I don't, know about, I don't know about you, but it seems to me like what we need more than ever in our world is compassion and love and mercy, right? Stay on the news channel for five minutes and you'll see, wow, we need that. Or just stuff going on in our own lives. I looked up some synonyms of the words that, of these words, and here's, look at the different words I found. Empathy, grace, generosity, affection, Kindness, sympathy, fondness, tenderness, forgiveness, and goodwill. I mean, I think it's safe to say that we all want to experience these things, right? We all want these things. And here's the cool thing. Here's the beautiful thing is that the Bible tells us that Jesus embodies all of these things. And what he desires to do is to have us experience them to their fullest through an intimate relationship with him. Because the truth is really that even when we're going through difficult times, when the storms of life are raging, a lot of times these things, this list, these things, experiencing these things are what get us through. They're the things that right our ship a lot of times. Knowing that no matter what, no matter what, we are being cared for, we are being loved and watched over with, like we just saw, this reckless love of God that makes all the difference in the world when we are experiencing these things. Yet as followers of Jesus, we know that this not, we're not always experiencing these things. It's not always easy to remember to lean into the reality of that God is compassionate and that he has mercy on me and that he loves me. It's not always easy. It's more easy to get focused on what's going wrong so often and not his things. So how do we get to a place where we are experiencing compassion, love, and mercy of God more often than not? I know that's what I want. I want to be experiencing the compassion that flows out from God and his mercy and his love more often than I'm worried about my stuff or anxious about my life. So how do we do that? How do we get to that place? Well, our, well a few weeks ago, we, we started looking at, the, we looked at a story where Jesus fed the 5,000. Remember that? And we learned in that story that the key to growing and maturing in our faith is recognizing that Jesus is compassionate, that he's loving, and that he's merciful, and he's powerful enough to do the impossible. Well, this morning, as we continue on in our study in Matthew, in this, in this gospel, we're going to actually look at a very similar passage to that 
with a very similar message, yet the real difference that we're going to see is it's going to highlight what is necessary in order to fully experience this compassion and this mercy and this love. What is it we need to do? We know that he is compassionate. We'll say, yes, I believe that. But what do I need to do? Who do I need to be? Where does my head need to be in order to really experience that and feel like, oh, yes, even in the midst of all this, I sense God's love and compassion for me. Well, we start, we're going to start by looking at a story about an unexpected recipient of Jesus' compassion and power. And we're going to see the reason why she even gets it. So let's start by looking chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 21. Just look at verse 21 first. It says, And Jesus went from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, we've seen Jesus has been doing all these different miracles and all these different things. Now he heads to another area because up until this point, with the exception of the, if you remember way back, the Roman centurion and his servant, with the exception of him, Jesus' ministry has mainly focused on the people of Israel, on Jews. He has only focused his ministry on the Jewish people. Sorry about that if that keeps going on. Um, Yet this is about to change because what's happening, Jesus is going to be heading into a region that is primarily inhabited by non-Jews or what they would call Gentiles. If you're not a Jew here this morning, raise your hand if you're not a Jew. Everybody but one person here should be raising their hand. Um, You are a Gentile, okay? We are Gentiles, okay? And these are the people that Jesus is now moving outside of of those people, okay? So Mark describes actually this region of Tyre. Now, we need to understand, it's important to understand that the people of Tyre, were, they were ancient enemies of Israel, okay? The Jews did not like them. They did, had no love for the people of Tyre and Sidon. Yet this is exactly where Jesus intentionally, after all this ministry just to the Jews, he decides he's going to head there, okay? So that's what's interesting about this story. Now, let's take a look at who he encounters here, okay? Let's look at verses 22 to 24. It says this, and behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him saying, send her away for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. All right, so the first person that Matthew tells us that Jesus encounters is this Canaanite woman. Now, you got to understand, for a Jew, it was one thing to be a Gentile. It was quite another thing to be a Canaanite. In, in a Jew's, per, Jewish person's eyes, really to be a Canaanite back then was to be the lowest you could possibly go. Okay, so that's the view that was out there. Uh, you see, and here's why. Here's, let me give you a little backstory here. See, the Canaanites um, in the Old Testament, they were this idolatrous and they were just corrupt is, um, enemies of Israel. This is who they were. These are those people, remember, where God said in Deuteronomy, he says, go and get rid of the, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Canaanites, the Bugbites, all those different people. Go and get rid of all, some of you got that. Go get, all, go get rid of all those people because he wanted them to be rid of, because he knew that these people would probably influence his people to start doing what they were doing, to worship other gods, to worship other idols, and take on their customs and begin to just totally go away from God. 
And we saw that eventually happen, didn't it? Because they didn't get rid of all of them. So that's who these people are. That's who these Canaanite people are, the ones that God said to Moses and to Aaron, he said to these people, wipe them out, get rid of them, because they will destroy you. And it happened because they didn't. So not only was she a Canaanite, she's, she's a woman, Okay, that's another important thing. Jewish men were not to associate with any women outside their mother or their wife. It's the way the culture was. You just did not do it, especially then a Canaanite woman. So the reality that this Canaanite woman, you gotta, we got to understand this, the reality that a Canaanite woman of all people would possibly receive the compassionate ministry of Israel's Messiah <laughs> that it was pretty remote. It was pretty remote that that would happen. And we can assume that that will be the case from the response that Jesus gives her concerning his plea to help her, de her demon-possessed daughter. What does she get? Silence. Nothing. She wants, she pleading, help me. He pretty much ignores her. Doesn't say anything. Now, you can assume that this, this woman was not willing to give up. We can see that she was persistent in her request because we see eventually that the disciples come to Jesus and basically they, they beg him. They beg him to send her away. Basically, what they're saying is, Jesus, just go do what she's asking. Just, do, just take care of it. Or just shut her up, you know, because she was just relentless. So we know that she was continuing on. She kept going. We want us to be left alone, the disciples are said. Yet Jesus responds. Look what he says. He responds by saying that her request isn't something that fits within the sphere of why he came. He didn't come to do that. Just to do, you know, he, didn't, he, was, he was sent only, it says here, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, you got to understand, you're going to hear some things this morning. These are some passages that are very um, perplexing, should we say, okay? There's some things, Jesus is going to make some, give some responses that don't seem to jive with how we believe Jesus operates. But that's okay. Jesus loves to burst our bubble, doesn't it? Doesn't he? He loves to stretch our boundaries, and that's what he's going to do um, this morning. So he says he can't do that. He came only for the lost sheep of Israel, now, that doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't concerned about the rest of the world. We know that he was, not only because, remember, he healed the centurion, who was a Gentile. He healed his servants, who was dying. And we know that at the end of Matthew, when we get there in seven years, we know that, what does he tell? He tells his followers to go and make disciples of how many people? All people. So we know that Jesus is concerned about the world. See, what's going on here is Jesus is clarifying his mission here on earth. This was his mission on earth, and he wants this, his disciples and this woman and anybody else who's hearing and us to understand that. You see, God always intended his healing grace to go out to the world and to flow through his chosen people of Israel. That was his plan. That's the way he always planned it. And look back in Genesis, the Lord told Abraham, who was the father of the nation of Israel, listen to what he says, I will surely bless you 
and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, as the sand is, that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you obeyed my voice. This was the plan. Obey me. Do what I tell you to do because it's going to be good for you and it's going to be good for the entire world. Okay? Years later, though, <laughs> we know how that kind of, if you've been in church at all for a long time, especially, you know how this thing went. If you read your Old Testament, it says, through the prophet Jeremiah, God said this about Israel down the road. He said, my people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. That means their leaders have led them astray, turning them away on the mountains. From mountain to hill, they have gone. They have forgotten their fold. Now, the Messiah, spoken of throughout the Old Testament, was seen as the one who would come and would gather all these lost sheep, okay? So, in what Jesus is doing here, in presenting himself as a shepherd, he's claiming to be the fulfillment of this messianic prophecy. This was his mission. His mission was to come and do this for Israel. We've got to remember that. That's very, very important. Okay, we see that this was even the Apostle Paul even affirmed this later on in Romans. He says this, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. So this is why Jesus is saying what he's saying. This is what I came for. Well, we see, that, we see here, though, that Jesus' ministry priority doesn't deter this woman from getting what she came for from Jesus. She is relentless. She wants freedom. She wants healing for her daughter. Look at verses 25 and 26. He says, but she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. Let's pray. I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that just bizarre? Bizarre stuff. So what's going on here? You see, first Jesus gives this woman the silent treatment. Now when she pleads with him, it's kind of like, she, it's like he adds insult to injury, huh? He's calling her a dog. What's going on here? Why is Jesus doing that? Well, first of all, it's important to understand that Jesus is not calling her just a common, using a common slur like some rabid dog that's just out there running, running wild like a scavenger on the streets. He's using a word that actually back then referred to like a pet, like a lap, like a lap dog. What Jesus, what Jesus is doing here, he's saying, what he's saying, I mean, that doesn't sound much better, does it? But really, what he's saying here is that it wouldn't be proper to give the blessings that belong to the children of Israel to the people that don't belong to Israel. Just like it wouldn't be proper to say your, children, your child is sitting at the table and taking bread and throwing it down to the family dog. Weird saying, though, huh? This is hard stuff. This is stuff that doesn't jive a lot with our thoughts of how, who Jesus is. This is where we got to trust that Jesus is God, and he knows what he's doing, and he's still compassionate and loving, okay? Now, understandably, most people would be put off by this, wouldn't they? Sorry, 
I can't give you, it's, it's like giving, it's like, you know, taking what's really good and taking it from the kids and giving it to the pet. We can't do, I can't do that. You would think she'd be like going, okay, fine, I get it. You don't want me here. I'm out of here. But that's, that's not what she does. This woman, she is determined. She will not be deterred. Look at verses 27 and 28. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then he answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Another interesting thing. You see, this woman doesn't resent at all, believe it or not, being compared with the house dog, with the pet. You know, the ones that are in little people's purses and stuff like that and all that. She doesn't resent that at all because she understands exactly what Jesus is saying. She's like, oh, I'm, that's great. I'm the, I'm the family dog. I'll take it. That's fantastic. If I'm the lap dog and I'm not the one that's out there running around in the streets, that's great because you know what that means? That means that I'm sitting at my master's feet, at the master's feet, under his table, all safe and sound, and I'm free to eat whatever falls on the floor. That's how one of my sons and his wife, that's how they keep their house clean, okay? They have a four-year-old and they have a little sheep dog that's beautiful but fat, Okay? And that's why that we, uh, we constantly hear, his name's Marshall, we'll constantly hear, Marshall, what we know, what does that mean? Something fell on the floor. And he's he's going eat to eat it up. So that's what she's saying. She's going, I, I, that's fine. Sure, I get that your ministry is first to your people. I get that. I'm cool with that. That is totally fine. But that doesn't mean that the rest of us can't benefit from all that I know that you can and will do. We're gonna, we can benefit from that. I get it. You're the Messiah. You came for your people. But I know that's going to benefit us. Incredible insight, huh? Incredible spiritual insight she had. A commentator um, that I read this week concerning her response said this, without knowing it, this woman is encapsulating the truth that Israel being chosen as God's people is not for their benefit alone, but in order to be a blessing to all nations. This would be a powerful symbol to Matthew's primarily Jewish readers of the universality of the gospel. Everyone is now invited to the table. This is a huge thing that's happening right here. Everybody is welcome now. Bring them on. Bring them on. I'm here to love everyone. It's like the Apostle Paul said to the Galatians. Remember, he said that we're all united in Christ. There's no longer Jew, Gentile, slave or free, man or woman. None of that. For all, we are all one in Christ. And incredibly, this woman understands. She gets that. Now, next we see that not unlike that of the Roman centurion back in chapter 8, we looked at him. Jesus, he commends her faith. He commends her faith. Heals her daughter from a distance even. He doesn't even, he doesn't even need to go. He just says, don't worry about it. It's done. That's, that's just amazing. Now, don't, but here's the cool thing. Look what Jesus commends her for. He commends her for her great faith. I mean, interesting. Here's the thing. It's the, this word, the, the word in Greek for great here is megas. What does that sound like? 
Yeah, like that sounds like mega, huh? As in like, it's a mega store, or you win mega millions, or for you nerds out there, Megatron, who is in charge of all the Decepticons, you know, all that stuff. Huge, ginormous. That's what this word means. Her faith is, it's huge. So what, what is it about it, though? What is it about this woman's faith that is mega? Well, a couple things, and I'll put those up for you on the screen. The first one is her faith. It acknowledges certain truths about the person of Jesus. Okay, it acknowledges certain truths about the person of Jesus. Notice that she calls him Lord, not just once, but three times. And not only in that, in verse 22, she calls him Lord, and then she says, Son of David. I mean, of all people... This Canaanite woman is addressing him with his messianic title. She gets who Jesus is. You see, true faith is more than just intellectual knowledge about God. And I think that's the fear that I have of a lot of people out there who claim to be followers of Jesus. Is A lot of times they know a ton about God. Hey, I grew up in church. They've been to Bible studies, church, camps, made decisions, prayed the prayer, done all that stuff. But the reality is it doesn't go past really an intellectual assent to who God really is, to really knowing who he is. You know, look at what James tells us, and familiar verse to many of in James 2, he says, you say you have faith. For you believe that there is one God. Great. Awesome. That's good that you believe. I'm glad you've been to church. I'm glad you've been to camp. Glad you prayed the prayer. So good. You're glad you're a VBS leader. All that stuff. But look what he says. Even the demons believe that. And they tremble in terror. They, believe, they, got, they got all the knowledge they need. They know exactly about God, about Jesus. But they don't know Jesus in their heart, truly know him. This Canaanite woman was able to see Jesus for who he really was. They saw, she saw him not as just a a God, but as a gracious and compassionate Savior who was capable of extending mercy to her and to her daughter, no matter what her heritage was, no matter what her social standing, that all got obliterated because of who she knew Jesus who Jesus was. You see, when you and I approach Jesus this way, when we approach the Lord, uh, and uh, the first thing we need to do, one of the things we need to have in our minds, first and foremost, we need to, first and foremost, we need to remind ourselves about who he is. I mean, not just the facts about him, but the truth about his character. And then let that permeate our hearts and our minds. My wife and I, we were just talking about this the other day. We were talking about our, our, our times, our own individual times of the Lord and our quiet times and what we're doing. And talked about how easy it is so often sometimes just to, just to take in that knowledge and then move on with our day. And I, just a little personal thing, what's been happening to me lately, God has really been teaching me in my times in the morning with the Lord, which, by the way, aren't these long, extravagant, you know, three-hour times with the Lord, okay? Just so you know, your pastor's not doing that. 15, 20 minutes works great. Spending time with the Lord, but you know what's happening? I'm making sure that I read God's words first, and I let the truth of what I read permeate how I pray. I beg and ask and plead God to let the truth that I've just read permeate how I think 
that day, how I think about God, the truth of who Jesus is to determine how my day is going. Does that make sense? It's, it's been revolutionary for me. It's been so good. I've known that, done kind of things like in the past, um, but it's been revolutionary to knowing to really who Jesus is, let that permeate how I think about him, how I think about myself, how I think about others and everything. All right, that's the first one. Second thing that was mega about her faith is her posture or her willingness to see herself as a desperate, unworthy sinner, not a message people like to hear. Come on, come to church. We want to tell you how desperate and, uh, and unworthy you are of God's goodness. It's the truth, but it is the truth. You know, she, she, this woman is absolutely fine with acknowledging that she is in desperate need of Jesus's compassion and authority. She has no problem with that. Her pride's not going to get in the way. Well, my daughter's dying, but you don't understand. I can't bow that. You know, I wasn't a part of the Canaanites back in the day. I'm better than that. I'm not them now. I'm not prejudiced. I'm not that way now. No, she knew it. She knew, she absolutely, she recognized that she had no merit, no priority, no standing, nothing to commend her to Jesus. She saw herself as a beggar, begging for Jesus to show compassion. It's like we look back, it's like we look back when we were looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Remember Matthew chapter 5 verse 3 says, blessed are the poor in spirit, or, or happy or fulfilled are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And when we, looked at this, we talked, when we looked at this, we talked about the fact that poor in spirit is not referring to a weakness of character or, yeah, you're, a, you're just down there. No, it's not a weakness thing. What's rather, it's how a person sees their relationship with God. If I'm poor in spirit, I see my relationship with God in the way, I love how the message says it, though. I see that how much I need him. It says, the message says this, you are blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. That's where this lady was. D.A. Carson uh, says this. He says, you are poor in spirit if you know there's nothing in you, not family ties, respect in the community, occupation, or so-called good works or personal holiness. That is available enough to commend you to God. Put illustratively, you are blessed when you see you're just a beggar coming to the door of the kingdom without anything to give to get you in. And so you are pounding on the door, appealing to the king, oh Lord, let me in, oh Lord, give me what is needed for entrance, your grace and your mercy. What a mindset. What a mindset that this woman had, a Canaanite woman. It's amazing. You see, the truth is that on our own, we are absolutely spiritually bankrupt. And in order to truly experience the overflow of Jesus' compassion, the stuff we're talking about, in order to experience the compassion and this mercy, we must be willing to approach him with that mindset. And that's why a lot of people say, I don't want to have anything to do with God. He sounds really great, but if I have to come to him as a beggar? What is the number one thing that keeps people from Christ? It's pride. It's pride. I want to be in control. <laughs> and let me tell you, after you come to Christ, you still want to be in control. But you've got to get over the fact that I'm, I'm realizing that nothing in me is going to get me in a good standing with God. Nothing of my own. Nothing. It's his grace. 
It's his mercy that he loves to lavish out on us. That's so great. Okay, this woman, so the third thing, this woman, next thing we see about her is she has a faith that is persistent, (laughs) to say the least. She has a faith that's persistent. This woman begins by coming to Jesus pleading and crying for Jesus to heal her daughter. Yet Jesus stays silent. Disciples are annoyed. They They want her gone. Jesus tells her that he can't help her, okay? He tells her matter of factly, sorry, it's just not in the plan. So it's not going to happen. Yet she persists. She keeps on going. And Jesus tells her that it wouldn't be appropriate at this point. But to do this, at this point, you would think that she would give up. You would think she would say, okay, fine. But no, she keeps on going. Because she would think that people would think that she was being rebuffed by God. But no, she doesn't feel that way. Let me ask you this morning. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever felt like you've got the silent rebuff from God? Have you ever felt that way? You come to him begging for him to show you his compassion by meeting your deepest need, and it feels like all that you are met with is silence. I felt that way. Here's the deal, though. How do you deal with it? How do we deal with that when we keep coming to God, asking him for healing, asking him for compassion, asking him for mercy for ourselves or for someone else, and nothing happens? How do we respond? Well, I know the temptation for me, maybe not you, but for me, is stop. This is stop pursuing. This this isn't working. This just isn't working. Yet what we learn from this woman in this time here, what we learn is she's she's helping us to see to not give up, to keep pursuing, keep pursuing praying. God wants us to be people who endure, who wrestle, who persevere and refuse to quit. That's what God wants us to be. Because he knows that when we do this, our faith is tried and it's tested and it's refined and it's wonderful. Our faith grows, but it's also brilliantly shown to other people as well. People will see our faith, but our faith will grow as we continue to come to him and not quit. We now come to this passage there, the small part in here that kind of sets the stage for this miraculous encounter that's going to happen with literally thousands of Gentiles, okay? Look at verses 29 to 31. He says this, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on a mountain and sat there, and a great crowd came to him, bringing with them lame, blind, crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put him, them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they, when they saw the mute speak and crippled healthy, the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Well, once again, great crowds are following Jesus, and they're just bringing them people like crazy. Can you imagine? Hey, the word is out. Jesus is around again. We've heard about him. Get your stretcher. Get, let's, you know, we'll care. I don't care. We'll care. I'll carry you. You know, a lot of, there's probably a lot of piggyback going on. A lot of stuff running to Jesus to be healed, and it says the crowd wondered. or They were amazed by what they were witnessing. No kidding. I mean, can you just imagine it? I mean, left and right, blind people. Whoa, I can see. Someone who's totally crippled, all of a sudden they're walking around, you know? Someone that can't, never been able to talk, won't shut up. You know, because they're just talking like crazy, just on and on and on. Can you imagine what a scene that must have been? It must have been mind-blowing. 
Now, we can surmise that this crowd really was a a Gentile crowd because it says that the people glorified the God of Israel. What that implies is that the people in the crowd attributed honor to the God who originally, a God that wasn't theirs, but a God of somebody else, okay? They seem to understand the source of Jesus' power. They seem to understand that he came, his source of his power was from God. That he was God. They were starting. And then these are the Gentiles. These are the non-Jews. These are the people that hadn't read all about the history of the Old Testament. They, they don't know the history. Yet they're the ones that are responding. Yeah, we get it. It's mind-blowing. Now, now, just like the miraculous uh, story that we saw um, of the feeding of the 5,000 after healing a lot of people. Jesus kind of does the same thing here. We kind of see a repeat of that similar scenario. The difference, though, is that the first, once again, the first crowd was mainly Jews. This one is primarily Gentiles. Let's look at the remainder of our passage here. It says in verse 32, Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are, you going to, where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? You'd think they would have figured that one out already. And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few fish. And directing the crowd to sit on down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. They took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into a boat and went to the region of Magadan. Very interesting. Now, sounds very similar, huh? Now, to me, though, what really stands out about the story right away is to the degree that the crowd is taken by Jesus' compassion and power. Check out, they were with him for three days out in the middle of nowhere. That's a long time. I imagine there were these long lines of people not only just waiting to get healed by Jesus, but there was probably crowds of people just looking on going, oh, I want to see this one. I want to see what he does with that one. Can you imagine? People just, I, I'm not going home. I, buddy, I know you got healed, but we're staying to watch. You know, which this one's going to be, boom, he's walking again. Yes. You know, can you just imagine? People, they don't want to go home. They just wanted to be there. And Jesus is having, he has, it says he has compassion on them. And for some reason, I've lost my last page of notes. <laughs> so, can someone check back there to see if I have a page of, uh, <laughs> that's very interesting. Thank you, sir. Thank you. <laughs> you are blessed, my son. Um, <laughs> So we really, we see that after three days of being with him, Jesus, what he does, what do we see him doing? He expresses his compassion for the people. And he knows that they've got to be hungry. Now. They're out in the middle of nowhere. Three days, no one packed a huge backpack. They just came to get healed. And see, so once again, we see the compassion of Jesus for those in need and the power that he has and the authority he has to meet their need, no matter how impossible it seems. Yet this time he does it with people outside of the Jewish faith. Very interesting. 
See, Matthew is trying what I believe is to convey here to us and to really his Jewish crowd. Matthew was written to a Jewish people. It has a Jewish flavor to it. And I believe this is what Matthew was trying to convey to them and to us as, and to us as well, that Jesus is a gracious Savior whose compassion overflows unto all who come to him in faith. I put it out there. Just look at that again. Jesus is a gracious Savior whose compassion overflows unto all, unto all who come to him in faith. See, again, in Romans, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, we looked at part of this already. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith. From first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Faith that acknowledges the truth about who Jesus is. It's a faith that's willing to see ourselves as desperate, unworthy sinners. And faith that is persistent. You see how this spreads across the whole spectrum of not only those that don't know Jesus yet, but those of us that do as well? We all have to have this kind of faith. The truth is that our sins, our rebellion against God actually makes us, in the reality, less than dogs, even wild dogs. We deserve eternal punishment and nothing less because of our rebellion. It's his sacrifice on the cross in our place that saves us. It's his righteousness not ours. It's his mercy, not our goodness, not our merit. Really, I hope this challenges you as much as it has me. I hope this challenges and encourages you, encourages you to come to Jesus as the Canaanite woman did, clinging to the word and to, its, to the word, his word and to his character, okay, to who Jesus is. To come to him persistent in faith. Keep coming, keep coming, knowing that he is compassionate. And be assured that he will graciously give to all, everybody who cries out, he will give compassion, mercy, and love, and grow our faith. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the fact that we can put our faith not in faith alone, or not in our own effort. God, what an amazing thing that we put our faith and our trust in a God who is faithful, compassionate, loving, caring, perfect. God, I don't understand that. It's mind-boggling, but I pray for all of us here, for those that don't know you this morning, that do not have a personal relationship with you. I pray, God, that they would see their need to turn to you and to not to their good efforts, but to the mercies of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus to save them and that alone. And for those of us that do walk with you, God, that we know that we are in a relationship with you, I pray that, God, that we would continue to be persistent in pursuing you, to not give up, that you would grow our faith in that, that we, as we do that, we would grow and that we would shine our light even more as our faith grows, but that you, we would fall deeper and deeper in love with you all so that you would be glorified and honored. We pray it in your son's name. Amen.